Okay, come on. Everybody's kind of scattered out in here. You know, you need to kind of lift up your voices. Help us out here, all right? Um, like I said, there's, there's probably a lot of people hopefully joining us later or now online that, uh, you know, but, but we're going to focus on the thing that God wants us to focus on today. And um, I'm glad you have confidence and you're, you're ready to get out here and come together because we need what God wants to do in and through our lives among one another. So Second John, so find that, uh, which is a letter that John wrote. It's more like a postcard in a way, right? It's like a postcard that you would send to a friend. Uh, so we're going to we just kind of walk through Second uh, John as he talks about walking in the truth. Walking in the truth means the same thing as living in the truth, okay? That's a beautiful picture. First, it says First John, doesn't it? It does. I wonder who typed that. All right, so yeah, it's uh, Second John. So you find First John, just keep going, and you'll, don't go too fast, you'll find second. I notice everybody's like squinting at me. Everybody's just kind of like giving me strange looks, which happens occasionally. I just have to go through my mind, okay, what is it exactly? And I thought, wait a minute, I better check. Yeah, sure enough, that, I'm glad that's what it was. I mean, yeah, never mind. But anyway, uh, there's a, there, there, maybe you guys know this, but um, there is something like a virus that, um, is like spreading all, I mean, and it has been for a long time, really, all through the world. Um, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about COVID-19. I'm talking about something worse. There, there is, yeah. So, so people, people are getting diverted their attention. There's something worse, and it spreads. It spreads like a virus. I mean, it begins to find a host that, that accepts it, you know, it receives it, and then it attaches itself, and it begins to re, uh, reproduce, and it begins to just take over. But, but this is not a virus that just affects the body. It's a virus that affects the mind. It affects the emotion. It affects your very soul. I mean, and when you buy into this, and, and it happens to you, uh, it, it begins to destroy. It begins to destroy you physically. It can destroy you emotionally. It can destroy your happiness. It can destroy your joy. It can wreck your whole family. Of course, that virus that we're talking about is false teaching and sin. Yeah, see, it's a lot more dangerous than anything else going around, and it's going to destroy a lot more, cause a lot more pain than anything else uh, that's happening out there. And it spreads so easy because there's a part of us, that unredeemed part of us, that sinful nature part of us, that is attracted to false teaching instead of what God says. So we have the Word of God and the ability to know how to read it properly and to interpret it properly and in its context and then to apply it to our lives. Um, a lot of the early churches at the time that John wrote this were already being infected by false teaching. And people were being diverted away from the truth. And I said this in Sunday school, but I'm going to say it again. And by the way, I don't know who brought the peaches this morning. I don't know. This just happened to come up. Uh, whoever you are, God bless you. So if you, if you were just laid out of church today, or if you didn't get here early enough during, during our pre-Sunday school time, man, it was awesome. And just some of the blessing. Yeah, Miss Jane? Uh, bless your heart, Jane. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, but, uh, is a, yeah, real blessing. So anyway, uh, where was I? Uh, I just thought, you know, it's just like, man, what a, what a blessing God gave us. But uh, 
So in the early church, there were a lot of these things that were already spreading. John is now getting to be an old man. And as he's writing this letter, uh, he's writing to people that he knew and loved very dearly. Probably by the time that he wrote this, all the other apostles are dead. Probably, you're getting toward A.D. 90. You're getting toward the end of that first century. And uh, of the ones that were with Jesus, that spent all that time with him as Jesus was ministering on earth, and then they were with him after the resurrection, they were the ones personally sent out Jesus as he started his church. And as he began to call people out of the world and to follow him as disciples, these were the ones, and through them the teaching went forth. So everything we have in our New Testament traces to these men and to Jesus himself. And before the word was written, everything that was said, they would judge. Is this what the apostles have always taught us? Is this what Jesus taught them? And even every book is connected to one of the apostles and then Jesus himself. And so now John, as he starts this off, if you'll look at it, so keep it open right there. Keep it ready. John says, the elder, he's the elder. And that word there means the, you know, the really a leader, uh, not just physically old, but spiritually mature. So he was, as you might say, of the whole, of all Christians on earth at that time, he was probably the elder. As I said, he may have been the only one left that had actually walked with Jesus and the only apostle left living. And uh, so he says to the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So you get the idea right off the bat that that truth and then love are going to be kind of part of the core part of what he wants to talk about here. It's the focus of this short book of the Bible and, and how they interact. Um, so some conclude that this elect lady that he's writing to, he's kind of like sending a personal postcard, a little letter, and they recognize it as inspired by God. And from the very earliest days, all the church fathers that lived right after this time always viewed this as inspired scripture. So who was this person? Well, it may have been a woman that he knew and he encountered some of her children and uh, so forth. But then some people think, well, maybe elect lady is referring to a church. Now, please stay with me here for a second. You do realize that church was different for them than it is for us here in our century, that um, they mostly met in small places and in homes. And by this time, the Romans were persecuting and hunting down Christians. And, and they were doing this as they were out. They openly lived out and shared their faith. But when they all assembled together, many times they had to meet a little bit more secretively because there are those, if they found them all huddled up together, they would like to, to do harm to them. Um, but they met in houses and wherever they could. You don't find Christians and groups of believers building giant buildings just for meeting and worship until you get more into the 4th and 5th centuries. Okay, So they're thinking a little different here. So some are saying this may have been a church. It may have been uh, referring to uh, the group of people who worship there. And so sister church in verse 13 would be, or your, your chosen sister would be a sister church and some of their people. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Or I think the consensus is it's probably both. That probably this is a woman and probably the church was meeting in her house. 
And her children might refer to her actual children or all of them. So she was probably in some ways a leader. And she was someone that John knew very well, had a great impact. There's all kinds of theories on who it could be. But it's probably a woman and a church that met in her house. So that's kind of the context. We've got to set the context here uh, as we look through this. So uh, uh, the Greek pronoun, when he says you, see, we have to look at, when you say you, you look at the context to see whether it's singular or plural. And this is another reason why I know God chose Koine Greek to be the language of the New Testament, because it's so precise, because you can tell whether the you is singular or plural. And here, there's both, okay? So probably he's talking to an individual and to a group of people who were meeting together, and he's talking to you too today, okay? So you see, so this applies to us. Now, uh, now these were very confusing times they were living in, just like we're living in some very confusing times. There are a lot of, there are a lot of craziness going on. There are a lot of lies. There are a lot of deception. And the same thing was true then, uh, in this latter part of the first century, there were already a lot of false teachers who were infecting the churches with false teaching, false doctrine, leading people astray from God. Plus, on the outside, so you had from the inside false teachers coming out. Then from the outside, you had the Roman government who had begun persecution in a major way. So, like I said, attacks from inside, there were attacks from, you know, just like we have today. In fact, Paul tells us that in the latter times, which we're in, that false teaching would just really, really uh, take off, that it would, would abound. Um, but they also had the persecution of the Romans, uh, and uh, probably a lot worse than anything we've ever seen in our country, although maybe not any worse than some of our brothers and sisters are experiencing right now in other parts of the world. So, uh, so there are a lot of similarities, right, even though we live in different uh, centuries, a lot of similarities. So this applies. The principles apply because there are so many things God wants to call our attention to. I believe that, don't you? There are so many things. The problem is, is sometimes, uh, just like my dad used to say, the problem I guess I've always had, sometimes it takes a lot to get my attention. In fact, just at various times, something would be said like this, boy, am I going to have to get your attention? <laughs> you know, I'm about to get your attention, and I knew kind of what that meant. And sometimes I almost hear the heavenly Father saying, "Boy, am I going to have to get your attention? Because I can, <laughs> right? I hope God has gotten our attention, uh, because oftentimes we don't put ourselves in a position of listening. Huh? Are we going to hear the truth? Are we really putting ourselves in a position to really hear it? So because I'm amazed at so much of what we, and often me included, how much we relate uh, to our Christian faith that really isn't solidly Bible-based. It's culture-based. It's our Christian culture that we kind of have here. It's not solid scripture. A lot of the things that through the years I've noticed that we get so bent out of shape about and so up in arms about really don't have solid biblical bases. I mean, we've been through it, hadn't we? Do you think that more truth of God comes out of my mouth when I have a tie on versus when I don't? How pathetic that there have been times that's been a huge issue. 
Yeah, yeah, things like, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of issues like that that we get so passionate about, but they don't have any biblical basis whatsoever. It has more to do with style. It has more to do with personal preferences. Let's not even talk about music, folks. It even has to do with prejudices that we might have. It has to do with the religious conditioning that we have in the culture. It's what one author called folk religion. It's stuff handed down that isn't solid scripture, but it just becomes part of the way we thinking the way we do stuff. So we accept it. They had the same problem back then. Don't you remember when Jesus got on the Pharisees, how that they were teaching that traditions and customs of men over the commands of God? They were doing the same thing. But we do it, but we don't realize it. And there are times that we think we're really upholding God's truth when actually we're not. And we're burying our heads in the sand and we're really not being faithful to God, but we think we are. On some of these things. It's tricky, I know. So John's concerned in his day about walking or living in the truth. In verse 4 he says, I greatly rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So this is what his focus is on this, in this message. God's given us his truth. And he requires that we get his children, his family, that we live out and walk in his truth. We don't do it because he forces us to do it. We don't do it because we think that we're earning or paying off our salvation. We do it because of his love that's in us. Because we know that we are saved by grace alone. By him sending his son to pay for our sins on the cross. And we receive that gift of grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But the faith, that, the faith alone that we receive the grace with, that trust and reliance totally upon him, that faith alone does not remain alone. Because if it's real faith, we find that that faith begins to produce action. It begins to produce obedience. It produces a lot of other fruits in our life that result in glory to God. This is what happens as we're connected with God's grace. And we've got some instructions here that, and warnings to help us be faithful in the family of God in troubled times, just like they had. Are you ready? Here's the first thing. It's real simple. Are you ready? The first thing he says is we must know the truth. How are you going to walk in the truth? How are you going to live the truth if you don't even know what the truth is? You need to know, and, and listen, this isn't going to happen any other way than getting together and being taught and learning how to feed ourselves and staying in the Word and continuing that every day. John uses the word truth some four times just in the salutation here. So it's an important word. And basically, it means reality, what is real, opposed to mere appearance. It's the ultimate that is the basis for all that we see around us. And the Bible tells us that God's truth is revealed in two major ways, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His Word. And God's truth is so amazing. There is no way human beings, being fallen in sin as we are, there's no way we could attain to God's truth had He not revealed it to us. See, God's revelation, God has revealed His truth. God has inspired people to write down that truth as they were led by the Holy Spirit. God has preserved it. And now as we read it, and if you're saved and you have the Spirit of God in you, God illuminates your understanding to help you know and apply that truth to your life. And so basically, through Christ and through the Word. So let's get it documented. Are you ready? So Jesus himself, what did he say about it? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, 
I am the way and the truth, right? See that? He says, I don't just teach the truth. I am the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, according to his own words, he isn't the best way to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. And he doesn't just teach the truth. He embodies the truth. And later on that same evening, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, he's praying to the Father and he says, sanctify them or set them apart in, your, in the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. So you have his truth is revealed through his word and through his son. And there's really no other way you're going to get it. And he has given us his presence, the Holy Spirit, to help us to know, understand, and apply the truth. That is God's presence in you. That same night as Jesus was talking to him, he said in John chapter 14 in verse 15, and this goes along. So John was there. John wrote that in his gospel. Later on, don't you see how a lot of this teaching comes right back to what he's saying in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John? Because this is the same theme. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's about to say that here too, 2 John. Then he says, and I will ask the Father. This is right before he went to the cross. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Who is this divine helper that he's talking about? Well, of course, we know it's the Holy Spirit. But here he calls him the Spirit of what? The Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that happened at Pentecost. And if you know the Lord today, he dwells in you as well. His presence to guide us into all truth. So the truth that we have from God is objective, objective and absolute. That is, it is absolute truth. It never changes. It transcends the realm of mankind. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what you say about it. It doesn't matter what you do about it. It's still true. But not only is it objective truth that never changes, it's also a subjective experience in our own personal lives. We subject ourselves to the truth because not only can you know the truth, but we can love in truth and we can live in truth. So this truth, he says, look at it. In verse 2, he says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth abides in us. That means that truth, this truth isn't just a mental concept of something. It is God's truth, and it actually can live, be living truth inside of us. And uh, this means that, see, knowing the truth is more than just giving mental assent to a body of teachings. Though that's important. I mean, you start there, right? That's important. It also means that every part of your life is controlled by a passion and a love for God's truth, the truth. So how did these people come to know God's truth in the first place? Well, verse 3, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. There's your truth and love. In truth and love. You're going to see those two things go together. Truth and love. Paul told us in Ephesians 4 that we are to speak the truth in love. Both work together. Truth and love. But the way that they came to know this truth is through God who is rich in mercy and grace. Now you remember mercy is where God does not give us what we deserve. He gave us mercy. He, he didn't give us the judgment uh, that we deserve. But grace is God then giving us what we could never deserve or earn. And that is the riches of Christ in us. So grace and mercy work together in that way. And he channeled his grace and mercy to us through Jesus Christ. 
So it's, and, and, and he proved once and for all his love for us on the cross. God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. Okay, so this is what God has done. Grace is God's love that paid the price, right? God loves the whole world, but the whole world's not saved. Because in order to experience his love, you have to put your trust in his grace, which is the greatest expression of his love as Jesus died on the cross for your sins, realizing that you can't save yourself that you have to trust totally in what he did for you. And once that happens, his love and his truth and his grace and his mercy enters your life and radically begins to transform us. So you receive his grace by faith and you receive his salvation. You experience his salvation. And when you receive grace and mercy from God, guess what else you experience? What's that next word there? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Do you see that? That's another thing people have so little of today. And this isn't just peace that comes as everybody's getting along and doing what I want them to do and the sailing is smooth. This is peace during the midst of the storm. This is peace with God. I ask people a lot of times uh, when it comes close to the end, have you made your peace with God? And there's only one answer that's real. When, I, when people say that, I've taught a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I've tried to be a good person, and I've tried this, and I've tried that. And, I, and I, I, want, I want them to explain to me how you know you have peace with God. Because according to the Scripture, there's only one way. Being a good person and trying to be better than all the hypocrites at church is not what will save you. It's only trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross that will save you and cause you to have peace with God. Paul said it this way. Uh, there's our verse we've been going through, grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father. And, and so listen to what Paul says uh, in Romans 5.1 about peace. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified means we have been cleansed from our sin by faith, that we have received God's payment for our sin through his grace. So our faith is received, that being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through our Lord Jesus Christ that we can have peace with God. So all of this comes together right here. And notice how John affirms the deity of our Lord Jesus in verse 3, who is the, the Father, Son, in truth and love. And so a big core of all of our faith stands on the deity of Christ, that he is not only fully human, but he was fully God. If he's only a man, then he couldn't save us, no matter how gifted or unique he might be. If he wasn't God come in the flesh, then the whole Christian faith, there is no hope. It's all false. But Paul's, or John says, that always, this is the key part of it. Because that's the only way he was qualified to be our Savior. The great American statesman Daniel Webster, centuries ago, was dining in Boston with a group of distinguished men, some of whom had Unitarian leanings. Unitarians, by the way, deny the Trinity, and the deity of both the Son and the Spirit. There are still a lot of unity churches around that kind of, you know, hold to that and a lot of other stuff. But when the subject of religion came up uh, at the table, uh, Webster having the great mind and being such a respected statesman, he boldly affirmed his belief in the deity of Jesus Christ and is confident in the work of his atonement. But Mr. Webster said one man, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? No, sir, I cannot comprehend it, Webster replied. If I could comprehend him, he would be no greater than myself. I feel I need a superhuman Savior. Amen. He had it. That's exactly right. 
So and if our homes and our churches are going to be true to Christ and, a fo- and oppose false teaching, we must know the truth. You've got to. So many people are falling prey to lies from the enemy that are going to destroy their lives and destroy their souls forever simply because they don't take time to know the truth. How do we learn the truth? Well, by studying God's Word carefully, by, by assembling together with other believers, which is the way he designed it. We all have different callings and different gifts. Some are actually called, gifted by God, to take this word and to bring out, to bring out what this is teaching and to help us to learn and apply it. So we need to come together for teaching and we need to learn to read and study and feed ourselves, right? Amen? Okay, so remember we talked a few weeks ago about how we want to take what the Scripture says and bring it out. We want to take what it says and deduce what the meaning in all is, right? And so there's too many people today that have a false idea. They have a false teaching, and they want to take their false teaching and then find Scriptures out of context to support it so they can say, here is what the Bible teaches, when it isn't. They induce the meaning instead of deducing it. And I was going through that and talking about it during Coffee and Calories this morning. And Dr. Max, yeah, he had a good one. He said, well, I know what you're teaching about deducing rather than inducing. We're just interested in you reducing the... Anyway, so uh, there's that. I have to give you credit. I have to give... That was... Wow, that was a good one. Uh, so uh, we study it. We, we come together. We're taught. We allow the Holy Spirit to open our understanding. And we then... then are, you, are you still with me on this? Then we begin to practice it. Because you really don't know it until you're applying it to your life. Otherwise, it's just theory to you. So we've got to learn the truth with our minds. We love the truth in our hearts. And we live the truth by our will, by the decision that we make. So our total person must be yielded to God's truth and, and trusting in Him. That's what it means to know the truth. But not only do we need to know the truth, He also tells us we must walk in the truth. Verse 4 He said, I found some of your children walking in the truth. Now, to walk in the truth means to live in the truth. It means to obey the truth that you know. It's to permit it to control every area of your life. So this paragraph opens and closes with emphasis on obedience. And so it's a lot easier to study the truth. It's a lot easier to argue about the truth than it is to practice the truth. He's called us to practice it. Sometimes zealous Christians, watch me now, sometimes zealous Christians actually disobey the truth in the very way they think they're trying to defend the truth. Did I need to say that again? There are some very zealous Christians who end up disobeying the truth in the very way they think they're trying to defend it. Think about that. God help us, amen? And he points out that God has commanded us to walk in truth. Listen to this. He says, I find some of your children walking in truth in verse 4, just as we were commanded by the Father. Just as we were commanded. He points out that God has commanded us to walk in the truth and in love. God's truth, God's love go together. His commands flow from both. There's this truth of God. This is truth. And he gives us his commands because he knows it's true. And listen, I I may not like that. But it's truth. It's for my protection. 
And he gave it to me because he loves me. You do the same thing with your children. You say there's certain things you can't do. You can't play out in the street. And they might think, well, you're trying to keep some experience from me. You know, that this is just who I am, that I love to play in the middle of busy roads because I like to see cars coming by. But you know that it's dangerous out there and they could have something bad happen. God gives the same way. All the commands of God are a part of his truth are to protect us. Some of us don't like driving the speed limit. Everybody's just like looking at me. It's like... Yeah, our constable back there is like, if somebody says, hey man, he's like, okay, I'm going to be watching you now, right? But some people, why are they there? Because it's dangerous to go faster. Why is it you come to a curvy mountain and it gives you a warning and suggests a speed that's safe? Because, what do you want to do? Okay, either they could build a hospital down at the bottom of the mountain to take care of everybody that goes over and crashes or just pay attention to the warning here and, and, and uh, you don't have to go that fast. So it's for our protection. And listen, all of God's, listen, God's design and God's commands about life, listen, about relationship, about marriage, about family, about finances, about everything is not made to limit us. It's made to free us and protect us. It comes out of his truth and it comes out of his love as well. So you need to see that and understand that. That's what he's trying to point out here. Um, so his focus is on the truth and on the love that which comes out of it. The command takes God's truth and applies it to certain areas, specific areas in our lives. So notice that the commands are given by the Father. And every command, as I said, is an expression of his love and protection. Not simply about rules, folks. Our obedience to his word is also isn't just about rules. It's also an expression of our love for him, our respect, our fear of God, the respect and all that we have for him and because we love him. That's why he says for in 1 John, he said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous, he says in 1 John 5, 3. So our greatest freedom comes when we live according to his design. So he says, he says that this is, this is the command. And he says, I'm, and, and then he goes on in verse 5, Now I ask you, dear lady, lady, as though I were writing to you a new command, not as though I was writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. Are you with me on verse 6? This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. Why? Because we love. Why did he give them to us? Because he loves us. And part of that commandment is we love one another, as you see he said there. So this is it. It's a central part of God's truth is that not only we love him, but that we love one another. Remember what Jesus said, John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. But then John says later, repeating it, I'm not giving you a new commandment. This is what we've heard from the beginning. Well, from then. So you got to remember, there's been decades go by that they've been teaching this new commandment. God always taught us to love one another, didn't he? To love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I'm putting a new twist on it. That you love each other, not as much as you love yourself, but as much as I have loved you. That was the new part. But now this new part's been taught for decades. So John says, I'm not, I'm not telling you something brand new. You, you've heard this from the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, that we're to love one another and to walk in this. And so this is what, this is what he's emphasizing here, as he has loved us. So sometimes people do things that make it hard to love. Do they not? That's why it's not if you feel like it. It's a command. 
That's why I've got to rely on Christ's love flowing through me because my love would not be enough. Too many times our churches are filled with suspicion. We're filled with jealousy and gossip and bitterness. That's not love, folks. Not only is that wrong, that's not Christian. So where's the love? I wonder, as people that have lived their lives that have never really known much about the love of God, and they come together, even with us, do they, for the first time in their life, feel real love from God expressed to them? Or, or, or do they have to meet our approval first? Do they have to do something to win our approval before they genuinely will feel that we care and want to serve in Christ's name and share his love with them? We have to ask ourselves that if we're going to follow the truth and walk in it like he says. Because if, according to John, 1 John, he says it over and over, if we're not loving, we're not walking in the truth. If we're not loving, we're not walking in the truth. And John went on to explain that love and obedience, they go together. In verse 6, what we just read, it's impossible to separate our relationship with God from our relationship with other people. It's easy for me to want to say that. It's easy for me to want to say that, well, it's easy to love God, but some of you, whoo, it's, 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 it, it, takes, it, takes, it takes God's grace and power, amen? But, but God says, you love me, I love you, and I love them too. So you have to love one another. Uh, if we say we love God, he says in 1 John 4, 20, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, then you really don't love God. Go back and read it, chapter 4, 1 John. If we obey God, he says, then his love is perfected in us, and we don't have any problem learning to love our brother. He talks about that in 1 John chapter 2. So we have to walk in that truth, and that means also walking in love. And then the last thing is, not only know the truth, walk in the truth, but abide in truth. That is, to remain in the truth. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the, what? Antichrist. Do you see that? So he's saying, basically, watch out. Then that's the next thing. He says, watch yourselves. Watch yourself. You better check yourself. Don't wreck yourself. Okay. And so the word deceiver implies more than just teaching false doctrine. And part of what they were teaching is right here. He says that they're going out, they're denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. You do a little background study, you'll find out that the Gnostics in that day were infecting the church with false teaching. They really did not believe that Jesus had a real physical body. He just appeared to. That he really didn't die on the cross. It just appeared that way. That all flesh is evil and spirit is good. He had all these funky teachings and it seemed to make logical sense and, and the more logical it was, the more wrong it was. And so there was false teaching. They were denying Christ. Listen, if you deny who Jesus really is, you don't have the truth. Sorry. And that's what he said. They are deceivers and they're anti-Christ. The word antichrist there doesn't mean he's talking about the anti. There is one coming uh, that is, Paul calls him a man of sin. Man, a son of iniquity, I think, uh, in, in Thessalonians. And, uh, and then you certainly see that in the book of Revelation. But the spirit of Antichrist, he says already here, basically here's what it means. Antichrist, it means against Christ or instead of Christ. You could translate that either way. So against Christ, so there are those that are against Christ and there are those that are substituting instead of Christ. And anybody that doesn't believe that Jesus is your total Savior, that he's just, he's just some religious leader, that, that you, you may believe in Jesus, but you have to work your way. You have to do part of your own salvation, not trusting him for part of it. 
He says that's, that's what we're talking about. They're deceivers. They don't believe in the real Jesus. And uh, so he says you've got to watch out because they're there and they're at work. And so the word deceiver means leading not just into false teaching but to wrong living. People who take God's truth and make it say something other than it does than what it says. They lead them into wrong living. See, as they're connected because how you believe determines how you behave, right? And so if you believe wrong, you're going to behave wrong. Wrong teaching and wrong living always go together. And it's happening even in churches all across our land. So he says, watch out. Then, verse 8, don't turn back. Because he says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Do not lose the things you have worked for. When we go backward, uh, losing what we've gained, we also lose part of the reward we're going to have at the judgment seat at Christ someday. That you hate to see that people that have grown and they've walked in God's truth, and then in just a little while you can go. Listen, I'm telling you, you can. It can take years to get where God wants you to be, so He can use you and bless you. And in just a moment, you can go back and you can ruin that. And it can almost take for a long time to get back where you were, even in your testimony and even in the influence that God has for your life. And it's so sad when we see people grow, and then the enemy wants to take them right back. Don't go back. It's essential we hold fast to the truth of the Word of God. Are you watching yourself? Though Then, not just don't turn back, then he says don't step over the line in verse 9. Everyone, he says in verse 9, who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever, ab- Did you hear that? If you don't abide in the teaching of Christ and His truth, you don't have God. I'm not saying that. That's what the Bible says. That's what John says. So he says, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, older translations use the word in verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide. But the the Greek word means literally to run too far ahead, to pass the assigned limits. That's what the word actually means. And I think it's a great translation here, whoever goes on ahead. That is, you're going on ahead, you're stepping over the line, you're going further. So that's what it means to uh, transgress. Or even our word trespass means that you stepped over the line. Okay, so we know God's truth and we know we keep stepping over the line. So he says, when you do that, you're going to get out of bounds and you're in trouble of of getting out of the teaching of the truth and walking in the truth of Christ. And so watch out, don't turn back, don't step over the line, and don't get sucked in by the wrong crowd. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The teaching that they had always had, the teaching that the apostles had always taught that came from Christ. Talking about the teaching that is now recorded in the pages of the New Testament in the Scripture. And so he's saying, if they don't bring this teaching, do not receive him to your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Uh, so don't get, he's warning them, their church family, their their personal family, not to accept false teachers who visit them, wanting to fellowship with them, perhaps enjoy their hospitality. See, hospitality was a very important part of Christian ministry in that day. There weren't inns and places where travelers could stay, and especially Christians who wanted to keep away from the evil influences of the world. So they were admonished to open their homes to people and everything. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that we can't associate with people who don't know the Lord. I mean, that's the only way we can connect with them and share the Lord. And we even need to work harder at those relationships. You need to have people in your life that you're close to and that you're pouring something into that don't know the Lord. So maybe God can help you lead them to himself. 
but they have to be on the proper grounds. This means you may not need, you may not need to go some of the places they go and do some of the things they do. But if someone's got false teaching, what he's saying is don't let them come in and set up a Bible study in your house if what they teach uh, teaching doesn't match this. Certainly don't put them teaching a class at church. Wow. If they don't match, that's why we have to be careful about that. That's why he's saying, he's saying those who deny who Jesus really is do not have the truth. Don't let them, don't argue. And when they come to your house, don't, don't, just shut the door. All right. So that's what he's saying. Because if you're going to, you're going to get involved with them, you're going to become a part of what they're doing. Verse 12 says, I have a lot more to write to you. I'd rather not use paper and ink. I hope to come and do it face to face is what he's saying. And And then he says, other Christians are greeting you. So we're all part of this family. And to be a faithful family of God, we've got to know the truth, and we better walk in the truth. And we need to not only walk in the truth, we need to stay in the truth. Because I'm telling you, everything everything is under fire these days. And you know what? We may be coming into a time, I don't know, that we're going to be tested to see whether we really know the truth and whether we really believe the truth enough to live it. And God help us. Let's pray. Father.